Welcome to the Brilliant Podcast. Uh, this is basically an episode that I'm dedicating to sort of grappling with this um, interview that I recently did. And and I want to give a little bit of a back background to it because normally I wouldn't sort of like be so precious about something. I would I would just run it and and sort of let the chips fall where they may. But uh, but the current state of the anarchist space makes it uh, um, we'll just say not smart to do such a thing. So uh, and then there's a, an, an additional point that I want to bring up before uh, I start a conversation. So. The, the nutshell is that I actually uh, sat down with Keith Preston and had a conversation. And Keith Preston, for those of you who don't know, has been an anarchist active in the anarchist space since the 90s um, and is a couple years older than me. So I think has been, as act, uh, has been active a little longer than I have even. And he came out as a dissident against the Love and Rage Network. And as part of a consequence of that was sort of like we'll say in the orbit of some post-left anarchists or post-left anarchism, but, uh, but his intellectual interests uh, gravitated towards the right. And more and more over the decades, he has been sort of associated as like an alt-right uh, sort of figure. And a lot of anarchists are uh, uh, hostile towards him uh, for some, some reasons that are absolutely good but i wanted to sort of like let keith tell his own story and because i'd never been involved in any of the scandals because he's based on the east coast uh uh, near washington dc i sort of wanted to just sort of play it out and and especially in the context of heretics i thought that he would be an interesting voice to sort of see what it looks like when people leave the anarchist space and and where they go but um As our conversation happened, it became increasingly difficult for me to, to reconcile the empty spaces in his conversations with any sympathy, uh, just, just even, yeah, it just became harder and harder to hear him in a, in a neutral way. And so by the end of the um, uh, conversation, which was like an hour, like most brilliant podcasts, uh, I felt pretty uncomfortable about posting it. But the topics are still really important to me and they basically concern the the concept of tribalism nationalism and and what does it look like to sort of like to associate with people who you think you have something in common with and what does that look like from an essentialist perspective and from a perspective that's critical of essentialism so instead of sharing the conversation i had with keith preston Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a couple conversations with other people who are interested in the topic so that I get the conversation that, that I want. Um, and I, I'm, the reason I'm, I'm so sensitive about this is because back in the day, Green Anarchy Magazine did this sort of what I consider to be a nasty move, which is they, they tried to have an issue of their magazine about um, class struggle. And then they proceeded to, to kind of diss and dump on some of the people who actually responded to and, and engage in the magazine. And I thought it was a real bad faith maneuver. And so even though I don't sort of give two fucks about Keith Preston, especially after our conversation, I, I don't want to, um, to just dump on him because the issue wasn't really him necessarily. It's that, uh, 
there is a dark place that he lives in and that uses deceptive language to sort of explore the ideas that we're going to sort of talk about here. So the first part of this conversation um, is a person who you've heard me talk with a couple different times before, but is obviously a close friend and also very concerned in these around these issues. And to fuel this conversation, um, we basically did three things. One, <clears throat> we use this magazine called Tribes that's basically the magazine of national anarchism. And we'll talk, obviously, about it in detail. Uh, it's a fairly difficult magazine to get, but you can probably find it if you're uh, if you if you travel the path through Keith Preston's website, attack the system, um, go to the tribes link, and I think it ships from the UK, so not so cheap. And then um, we also sort of like looked at a survey of Keith Preston's writing in general, and uh, we also are going to have this conversation in general under the umbrella and sort of through the lens of the book that I, of course, glow and talk about all the time. And I would say about it that it's my favorite, um, not anarchist book, uh, about anarchism or about anarchy called Bolo Bolo. Um, <clears throat> so Dominique is here with me. Uh, Dominique just listened to the podcast in question, uh, impressions. Um, so listening to the podcast in contrast to the, the essays, to the essays that I could find, I feel like he was definitely, he was hedging at a level like at a post left level yeah. of, um, really not wanting to be pinned down, um, with the racial aspect, which is really why why I was listening mm -hmm. in the first place, but he's mu much, much more open about it in other spaces. And I thought that that was interesting that he was uh, doing like a, a PR thing from his perspective that, um, that r would make me think that it is what people call entryist. And I guess I just want to qualify that I have mostly not taken a, exclude people with bad ideas. I'm not super excited about Antifa and things like that. And, but I guess the, his interview just reviewed or uh, revealed that a lot of the ways that people have categorized this kind of tendency is true. And that there's something just like, um, it's a salesman and it's hard for me to trust a salesman. But having said all that, I think um, like trying to understand where these people are coming from is really fascinating in the way. And I guess I'll just say that if it didn't say their publication didn't say national anarchist, a lot of it could be basically printed in Black Sea Absolutely. or something like that Absolutely. as is. So that is like, that is troubling. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the the specific answer he gave to the question, sort of like, are you a nationalist, was no, and I'm not interested in talking about race. And that's a fascinating sort of response, because, you know, if we didn't live in this sort of the racial environment of the U.S., you could maybe argue that, like, that that's a 
normal or acceptable response to the question. Like, in other words, I don't believe race exists. I don't believe that, <clears throat> that you know, there's a difference between a black person and a white person. Um, and, you know, it, it, I don't know. It's, it, it's sort of weird to respond to it at, at the face of it because it's like, of course, race doesn't exist. It's not a genetic characteristic but it sure in the fuck is a cultural and a social characteristic. And to say that you don't want to talk about it without sort of being specific in this regard, it, yeah, it's like, a, it's like, I don't accept that the sky is blue because to me it's green. Um, so yeah, I guess that some, some anxiety about delving into this stuff is that, um, one of their definitions, um, I think, in the interview with you about what a, a nation is, is some of the people are like, it could be whatever collection of people you're around. And maybe it could, I mean, it's just not clear, really. And it seems like that's intentional. Um, that's really true in the, in the magazine, too. Definitely. They basically define nation in the magazine in two different ways. One is essentially they don't use the race language, but they basically sort of like imply this is from the Welsh people, this is from the Irish people, and this is what natives say too. They absolutely throw that up. And then on the flip side, the actual editorial to the magazine essentially said a nation is whatever you define it as. Which um, I would not use that term, and I find that pretty... Bizarre. I think um, with it's not something new to um, racial separatists to like to be like we we like the Tibetans. Yeah. We like the natives because we think white people are oppressed like that, or that they look up to that, or things like. Um, well, they mostly and definitely in the magazine they didn't call themselves white at all. Sure. Like, I'm just saying that's not, yeah. that's not uh, that kind of pluralism. You, like there was the meeting with the, uh, the American Nazi party person where they went and sat in with the nation of Islam uh-huh. to watch Malcolm X speak. And they're basically just like, yeah, we hate each other and the Jews. So like <laughs> we can hang out for this one, sure. one function. And I wanted to make a point of, uh, it makes me a, a little uneasy because um, I don't want to be seen as embracing um, free speech in a liberal sense sure. or uh, colorblind racism about these kind of mm-hmm. issues. Um, but a lot of my uh, conclusions could probably seem like that from the outside. No, that's fair. I mean, I mean, this is the hard part is the like... So, I don't feel critically towards this person or their perspective. I feel hostile towards this person and their perspective. Um, and in, in their particular case, they're so intellectual and, and they're so mired in a kind of discourse that's so that, that I would call like not Instagram appropriate. So like, so I, I have no fear that Keith Preston's ideas are going to sort of like become like wildfire and, and, and change the world. As a matter of fact, I think that they're so tentative. They've, they've learned so many PR lessons or whatever that they hide a lot, like that they more or less in, in, in our conversation didn't 
say anything explicitly hostile. Really, this on some level is is a question about. <clears throat> so I know, like, I'm not going to share this conversation, not because I'm, I'm I'm afraid to, but because I recognize the social consequences of having this conversation in the context of Keith Preston makes it basically toxic for a portion of people, uh, many of whom I respect, many of whom I don't respect, but more importantly, I don't respect the way in which this would be used as a cudgel to sort of say certain things about even having this conversation in the first place. In other words, how can we talk about something offensive without falling into the trap of sort of like mirroring that behavior? In other words, like if there is such a thing as a dialectic, it's choosing to associate with with Nazis on on the on the dialogue of race. Um, <clears throat> so uh, so, I'm, so I'm curious as to as to what you're like. How did you read much of the Tribes magazine? Um, I've read most of it. Yeah, okay. because of course, you know, the thing that that they would say in response to any criticism is we had a native person, we had an African American person, and we had some Asian uh, person. Sure. So, I mean, maybe that's just by their name they're going to get the negative um, attention. Because of, because of being called National Anarchist. Right. But I think the way that it um, is presented is maybe where the concern is because it's so close. They're speaking our language and it's just like to find the sketchiness you really kind of have to read between the lines, which is strange that they they could just be they could call themselves something else and be pr- pretty successful in even, certain scenes. Yeah, even if they said tribal anarchists yeah. rather than national anarchists, it would have been a lot a lot more difficult to sort of point them. The other mistake they made, and I mean, I know this is totally silly, but the typography that they chose for the cover—that's like a white supremacist typography. Mm-hmm. Like it's the sort of thing you would expect to see a blood and honor sort of like fucking thing with it, with that sort of typeface and with that sort of presentation. The cover of the magazine is is basically like a north faced clad youthful person on the top of a mountain using a um, a walking stick to hold their national anarchist flag on the top of the mountain. That's the cover of the magazine, and throughout the magazine, uh, they do a really coherent. Um, aesthetic job of making the whole thing seem like it's a package that these people are all subscribed to. There's quite a few articles in it that are basically like, what's good about national anarchism? And it really could read what's good about tribal anarchism. Right. So I guess um, I have to just say these people don't seem um, that exciting to me, but the way that I approach, like, the ideas in Bolo Bolo that I don't get, I'm not so worried about someone that has different ideas than me and that you could conceive Bolo Bolo as um, here's some like some Scottish people that have a Bolo or whatever they're trying to do. So that's kind of like trying to know why that is okay or not. And I, am coming more, uh, maybe I have to apologize, but I'm coming from r- how I interpret Heidegger 
and it's a kind of not his politics, mm-hmm. right? But that there's a, a pantheism. That's a, a com- he calls a committed pluralism that means that people we're not all going to agree, which means some groups of people are going to be repugnant to you. And I think Bolo Bolo does a good job of addressing that. And it is a lot of cultural, like leftist types of concerns, but really also he talks about that some people might want to be raiding Vikings. That if, if we're talking about anarchy as people realizing their desires, you have to admit that some people have desires that we detest. Mm -hmm. Um, And when it comes to someone just publishing a a magazine, I'm mostly okay with that, but it's like, why, why are they so secretive? Because I think one of the only... um, benefits politically to being far right right now is that it's dangerous so why not just um be blatant about it so well the editor so the editor has this interesting history uh, i think I believe his name is troy southgate which i'm sure is not his real last name um so his political i think beginning was around the national front party in england And uh, so we can tell a whole bunch of stories about the National Front, and not the least of which, of course, that they were like considered the fascist party in England in the in the eighties. And we can also sort of point to them as being the people that weaponized Nazi skinheads into being an international movement. Um, uh, So that's you know a thing. Uh, In Troy Southgate's version of the story, and and he was recently um, interviewed for. a sort of a book that's like an anti-fascist book that recently came out that was partially about the history of the National uh, Front Party. His interest in in the National Front and and what he claims the National Front was about during the late 80s, sort of like after their political heyday, was that they were becoming uh, a Green Party. And of course, you know, we we oftentimes sort of when we talk about fascists, we talk about like the the interplay between fascism and blood and soil arguments, and then the modern green uh, political movement. <clears throat> so, you know, he doesn't say specifically like you know what their relationship was with immigrants or whatever. But you you obviously we all know what the what the arguments that are made from a sort of reactionary, what we'd call conservative perspective on uh, environmental topics. But why that's relevant, I think, in this context is that I think his national anarchism, you know, and again, this tends to be true of a lot of British people, is, you know, more about, like, growing a garden in his yard than it is about, you know, annihilating people with different color, who, who, who are of, of a different color. It's, it's about the soft no of immigration politics, you know, rather than the aggro yes of beating Turkish people in the subway or, or whatever in the fuck. And <clears throat> like, before we get deeper into the Bolo Bolo part, I, I sort of want to speak to the fact that like, because he has that heritage and because he's sort of been active in that kind of political line, I think ever since that, that period mm-hmm. of time, in other words, he's been in the game for at least three decades. 
the, then this magazine has an orientation that can't you just sort of can't extract it from from that history and and that's you know one of the problems with talking about these things is just sets of ideas like there are plenty of people who sort of agree with some of the uh, soft anti-immigration arguments to put a, to put more of a point on this the problem with I guess their use of nationalism, their their way in which they're sort of articulating their internationalism, is that it's not actually small. It's not actually arguing for small scale. It's arguing for like uh, you know. Obviously, I'm trying to find words here to like to explore this, but it's arguing for like a micro politics that that mirrors macro politics or something. Like you know, I, I, whatever. I, I guess what I'm saying from a a more or less nihilistic perspective is that we can't begin to orient a better world until this world is absolutely demolished, transformed, you know, de- destroyed. And so they're attempting to turn this into a conversation that I think a lot of people do, and Bolo Bolo did, which is they're trying to have an ATR conversation, i.e. an after-the-revolution conversation, before the revolution, as if that fucking matters to wags. And so, you know, like one fundamental assumption in the in the, in the uh, tribes magazine is that when people are talking about their their cultural perspectives, that those cultural spec- perspectives are true and real and honest, rather than synthetic um, and convenient and and used to answer a question much more than because that's true and. And so for me, that feels like a, a major problem where, like, you know, I perhaps oftentimes will say something, like, from an indigenous perspective, but that's not because, like, but I'm using indigenous in the same way in which someone uses the word white in that context. It's a big categorization. It's not actually, like, something true and something that's culturally, I, I don't, you know, I've never uh, uh, taken a pile of beaver skins up the, up a river and I in a hide canoe. You know, that actually isn't part of my experience, even though that's part of my ancestors' heritage. Um, well, that, definitely the, the distinction of what I think a tribe means versus how they're using it is, even if they're coming up with multiple meanings, is that um, a Scottish person... They're like being Scott is not a tribe. Sure, definitely it's not. Um, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of Scots. That right, or Scottish tribes that that contribute to mean a Scot. And it's um, it's strange to imagine a revolutionary context where you would still relate with the mass of people from your cultural background, yeah. or that you have something in common with. How the, Europeans. You how the hell would you find them? Right. Like, if you're all of a yeah. sudden, Red Lake Ojibwe, unite! Right? You put up the sword, the beam of light comes from the sun. Who comes? Well, I mean, that's something also that he was talking about in this interview that I thought was interesting. Is in multiple times he referred to native tribes as... Um, being nations without a state and i really don't understand where he's coming from because native tribes totally have states sure. like and it's a 
it's a new thing. It's mostly imposed. Yeah, they're mostly states under the care of the Interior Department. Right. So it's kind of this, like, it's a middle ground. Like, it's maybe sort of like something like between a, a municipality and like a state government generally. But it's like there's um, constitutions and laws and police and a tribal council. Like, I don't, isn't that a state? Right. Um, What's the difference between that and not a state? Right. But, but of course, he says that because he doesn't have direct experience and because it's a convenient myth that a lot of people will nod their heads at. And maybe I'm saying that um, that's not really how I would define a tribe if I was being um, my most optimistic about this stuff. It wouldn't be my recognized tribe mm. necessarily. And maybe that's... Um, right. You think it would be a new creation of that's multiracial? Definitely. Yeah. Well, I mean, not as a not as an imperative that we need to as how how tribes is using multiculturalism to be like we got one from each sure. Benetton ad. Yeah. It's more of um, that. I'm more inspired by things like Ganda Croatan and these kind of. Um, and that's how Bola Bolo reads, too, that it could have been written. It seems like it's from that same kind of impulse, but that it's, I think, if there was a revolution or even if on our way as individuals away from what we have, it would look more like it would be more multiracial. Sure. Um, and also we already have, I have more in common with uh, a black person that lives in my neighborhood um, or a white person than I do with, like, an indigenous Mayan, for sure. <laughs> sure like, sure. and I mean, that's culture. Like, the people right. that eat the food I eat and, like, say hi to me, that's real, even though it's in this fucked up city context of everyone working, but it's like we have more in common than a racial thing. I mean, the thing that's so important about Bolo Bolo is that Bolo Bolo is subcultural. It's, and, and this is a, a place I think where an, the anarchist space has really moved a long ways away. And in the, in, you know, sort of a post-leftist says that, that anarchism has become leftist, and this is why. In Bolo Bolo, the tribe that you're a part of has to do with activities that you have chosen to do with your life. So you're in Lesbolo or alcohol bolo because alcoholism and lesbianism is more relevant to the world, the ATR world of bolo bolo than, than the, the people who you were, you know, ancestrally related to. And, you know, I, I feel like one of the, one of the, the lessons I try to draw from this is that like, you know, if we're going to believe in the impossible condition of revolution, we have to accept that it's probably going to begin with where it is that we're at right now, not where it is that we were at 100 years ago or 500 years ago before we were alive. And so that means that I'm much more likely to, to be part of an alcohol polo than I am to be part of, you know, an Ottawa, a northern Michigan, Ottawa polo. It's just, it's just, it's implausible. And, I, and so polo polo does a good job of doing that. Whereas tribes, 
and and sort of the national anarchist tendency to the extent to which it exists sort of believes in this illusion that is absolutely something they read in books or maybe heard tales from their grandfather but by and large something they've read in books and they've decided that's that's what I want and and so now point all the arrows in that direction and the naivety there or the the cluelessness you know I mean obviously this is why our leftist friends point to them as being racist, but on the flip side, anarchism has moved away from that counterculture and has moved away from that that we create our own reality phenomena and, and has basically signed on to the exact same program that t- tribes have signed on with. Well, I think um, part of that with Bolo Bolo, um, the focus on it, it's coming from the Marxism in a way that is valuable at least um, as a thought exercise to be like, what what are you actually doing? What, um, wh- what do you need to survive? How does this all work? And in uh, that is going to look like subculture type of stuff, but it's something that you don't see people talking about very often. And if we're talking about... Um, race people will gesture towards um like statistics of police shootings or overrepresentation in prison and stuff but it's it seems um much more abstract the way people um talk about these problems which is sort sort of ironic because bolo bolo is all verging on like a fantasy novel in some ways but because uh if you're taking revolution really seriously it's inherently gonna have to seem like that you know so i guess i'm not sure where to go here i mean we've sort of sort of said how we feel about this interview and about sort of this body of ideas um uh do you have other thoughts as to other impressions that you came away from? Um, well, I, I guess I could just say that I remember first hearing about um, the idea of national anarchism. I think there was like a there was a article in Green Anarchy a long time ago, uh-huh. um, and it just seemed like such a strange thing. At the time, and I think it's interesting that it was coming from possibly from a green anarchist. It wasn't like someone trying to be like yeah. uh, trying to do like a guilt by association. It was someone that's like this might be a problem. Um, the backstory on that was um, that was a former editor who had sort of shifted positions, and they were somehow in like that series. There was a couple articles that were sort of in that mix. Uh, one of which was actually came out of Greece, um, and and so it, it was strange because it was the Green Anarchy editors trying to reconcile both this editor person who sort of swapped ideologies every year or two, and how to reconcile the fact that they had moved into a, in a rightward direction, um, with trying to reconcile the fact that Greeks sort of had some things to say that. They weren't calling themselves national anarchists, or they were calling themselves anarchists, but they were saying things that we would read as, as nationalistic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, and so the Green Anarchy editors didn't exactly have a full story, but they knew that these 
both of these things were happening at the same time and they were just trying to reconcile with it. So I remember being really uncomfortable reading it because, you know, on the one hand, like, you feel stupid to be obligated to say that I'm hostile to racists and their <laughs> the ideas they bring to the table. But on the And so they were kind of doing that on the one hand, but on the other hand, they were trying to, like, yeah, just, it, it was uncomfortable. Well, I wanted to um, compare it to, like, a... Uh the egoist communism sure. that, that's sort of how I view this um, as just maybe this is always how political ideologies function but it um, and right so the national anarchist stuff is from the 90s it's been a while and since the internet there's it seems like it's easier to like just combine whatever and that Definitely, I think, is related to um, the, it's much more difficult to be part of a subculture. There's not, even, like, thinking of the alt-right, the National Front, like, there were skinheads ready to, like, punch people that were mad. And the alt-right is, like, people in frog suits, (laughs) In whatever, yeah. like it's much stranger, much and it's stranger. Uh, not. Yeah, I mean, there's just a lot more weird genetic combinations of what people do, and that's more of how I'm. I think mem- viewing this. Mem- mimetic is the, sure, is the word sure. you're using. That genetic. Let's <laughs> <laughs> <a> slip here. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, uh, that works too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean. It's weird because I, I basically have met almost, I don't think I've met any of these people in real life. There was actually a year, this is a funny story. Um, so someone, I think the main person, so okay, so so there was an alt, or prior to, b- before alt-right in around 2003, um, there was this group called Banna, um, you know, which of course all the jokes came around to, to calling them Banana or something. But Banna was the Bay Area National Anarchists. And they were based in like Dublin, which for mm. people who don't know the Bay Area is a, is basically the furthest you can go and and still be in the Bay Area, uh, in terms of a suburb. <clears throat> they they um and they did about a couple PR stunts while they existed. Um, they had I think that they had their meetings like once a month meetings at like a Long John Silver or like a Chili's or something out in the suburb. Um, but uh, they did some PR stunts, including they did a a, a green event where they helped clean up the bay and they took tons of pictures of like the trash around the bay and they went out with bags and stickers and did, did the whole thing with like some larger group and then uh the other thing they did in this this one was a bigger deal on the internet was they went to the Folsom Street Fair and took tons of pictures where basically children were in the frame of very adult sexual activity and so sort of really made it about the children and so, right, all of this sort of stuff and a lot of conser- what we'd call the conservative troll behavior, you know, easily slips into that, like, what about the children? And, um, and of course, gets a lot of positive reaction as a result. Uh, there was a website that sort of focus- focused on the Bay Area left uh, called Little Green Footballs for a couple of years in the early, mid-2000s. And they were all about this sort of activity. They're the ones who um, portrayed the naked old men who used to go to the, the anarchist book fair 
Do you know about these these guys? The people that inflated their testicles? Yeah, with saline. Mm. Little Green Footballs was actually the one that really um, uh, highlighted how sort of like, you know, what about the children about the Anarchist Book Fair? Using these old men as an example. They also, in their um, story on this, th- their coverage of this stuff, um, uh, showed uh, the child's guide to nihilism. Okay. Well, there's a couple things. Um, is how they're just, a lot of what they're doing is just standard activism. Like I remember this group also, they were um, giving out sandwiches to like homeless people of all races. They made a big point that they're like, we're giving a black guy a sandwich, which is just, um, it's interesting when you'll, you'll see like a Muslim and Christian groups or like different kinds of people trying to spread a message or um, do something positive, to do something concrete from their philosophies. So I'm saying in that way, it was funny to see these people that are being called out as Nazis doing really mundane shit. But then, so that's one thing of how activists will tend to use the same forms. But the fact that they have this, that they, they have this green aspect is something to talk about also yeah. is that I think um, uh, there was the eco-fascist book that was um, right. It was somehow it was related to um, uh, Mori Bookchin. Um, it's called eco-fascism and it's basically just looking at the history of Nazi sort of proto-Nazi relationships. Um, Like you're talking about blood and soil, but there's the beginnings of all these things that we would associate with the 60s counterculture Mm -hmm. as like um, nudism, nature walks, uh, vegetarianism, even, and there's also stuff like the early Earth First. There was some... Um, just sort of not in my backyard. You don't, they're just like rednecks that don't want people hiking through their shit or whatever. So I'm, I'm bringing up these two things to be like, um, just because right wing people have certain views or do things that are similar doesn't mean that we can't, um, participate in things. And it, I have to have to just say that because being involved um, with Black Seed, we definitely um, you could make a case that we're arguing for people to become tribal in some way and definitely have a more uh, a non mechanistic relationship to the natural world or whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah. So it's cl- it's um, close to home enough that I don't really know. Um, what the distinction is for me, but I feel even though I also hedge like a postmodernist, right? I'm more, I feel like I'm more comfortable to be like some shit is important to me in ways that apparently the national anarchists are a little loosey goosey, which is kind of funny to me. Yeah. No, I mean, this is a, I mean, again, this is why this is such a huge challenge because I'm not sure, it's not a direct challenge, but it's one that if you're, that that there's enough collateral damage to to implicate a whole bunch of different stuff, and so you know, obviously, we should be asked the question. You know, what's a green anarchist perspective? 
Well, to me, a green anarchist perspective is not about the environmental movement. It's about something that perhaps can be talked about because we live in cities and because we're surrounded with postmodern sort of discourse. Like, I would say the green anarchism is an is a is a anarchism that prioritizes the earth and earth-based phenomena. But the problem with that, and the problem with saying it like that, is that okay, well, so th- does that mean that you want to save the earth? And of course my answer is no. The earth the earth is gonna do just fine on its own. And and I'm not necessarily so concerned with saving the humans on the earth either. And so now all of a sudden, you know, we're, you're in you're in the area of misanthropy and 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 all these sort of dark concepts. But but like fundamentally, like why I think the Earth is a more interesting sort of starting place is because for me the Earth is a more solid place to begin than the working class. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that it informs my activism because you know. The, for me, part of the point is is that activism is part of the problem here. And so for me, the earth is larger than activism. And, but, but, but what that means is that most of the ways in which we can connect the earth to any conversation we're going to have to human beings is, for lack of better language, spiritual. And now all of a sudden we're back to talking about tribes and national anarchism because the one thing you can definitely say about that about that magazine and about these, these people's approach, they're not spiritual. There's, they're utterly rational, both in the paper and Keith Preston in particular. It's like, you know, he is the rational subject, point blank. Right. Um, well, I, I, think, um, I think it might have been Russell Means was talking, or... Uh, yeah, one of these like charismatic aim people. I think it might actually been John Trudell who's saying much that, more poetic. Sure, sure he is. Yeah, he. Um, but he said something like everyone was indigenous yeah. at some point. Um, so yes, if you're like a if you're a Germanic tribesman, but like when was that? Sure, and I'm. I'm skeptical enough about, like, indigenous people that are much closer to that for me to take someone seriously that's just, um, you know, like, I'm, uh, I'm, like, half native. I'm half from one clan. Um, What is Keith Preston? Like, what is, he didn't, he said that he believes in the individual, and I'm, I I like that, and it's strange. It doesn't seem um, compatible. But what nation? Like, what? What is? Are you people doing like twenty three and Me? Because I could get behind that. (laughs) It would be take a lot more logistics to find the people that are like three percent West African, and you know all these things or whatever. But what? What tribe? And maybe that's the whole thing. I'm talking about the Gondokrotan. These these different examples in the U S when people um, live together or organized or whatever you want to call it outside of um, the tra- modernity. Sure. Outside of a uh, racial or the traditional religious formations. Um, right. So that that's something different. Yeah. I, I guess for me, you know, I, I mean, I try to be really crisp on this, which is to say that, like, come the day of days, we have to start over. And I 
probably we share this, I kind of would like that starting over to not look racial, especially in the way that we're looking at it today. Because by and large, when we're talking about anything racial in the here and now, we're talking about slavery and we're talking about genocide. We're not talking, there's not, there's no positive story. Well, yeah, I think that's, those are scary words. But um, if we're saying like, what is the difference between um, indigenous anarchism and national anarchism? Like, kind of have to bring that stuff up, right? Because that's what the difference is. Whether whether that's how I um, that's how I view what it means to be where I'm from. It's like that's just a bare minimum. If you're gonna have, if you're gonna talk to people in good faith. Yeah. I feel like you have to admit that. No, that's a great analysis, actually, of this whole tendency. It's a tendency that doesn't talk about slavery and doesn't talk about genocide. There's a problem here. We live in a world where those two things are still central concerns. Right. And um, I'm not super excited about being a victim. or And right, I totally get like reacting to excessive PC shit like that's part of the post left mm-hmm. um, but just it can come off as disingenuous or tone deaf if you like really if you're only talking about like um, interactions between people as if there's not a history so I'm like am couching because it's I don't want the conversation to stop and be like well these things happen so I don't want to hear you um but it's just, I don't know, like, I don't want to get trapped in that history, but it's, it seems like really strange if people are just like, nope, that it's an important, let's not talk about race. Like, yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. Cause I, I, like, I, I don't want to make this about Antifa, but it's worth mentioning that fighting Nazis on the street is also not talking about slavery or genocide. Sure. Yeah. And, and that, you know, and then. And then the intellectual version of that, calling everything fascist and saying that, that, that fascism is creeping into any space that isn't beating up Nazis on the street, it's part of the same package. But um, in a sort of inverse of that, I think there's uh, definitely people on the right and people on the post-left side that are like, bringing any of that stuff up means that that Sure. That you don't think anymore, that you are um, crystallized. And I just like it. I just have to say, yes, I get it. I know. I know why Nazis are annoying. <laughs> I understand why um, like a Twitter flame war about gender or race is not fruitful. Um, but it just doesn't have to be like that. You don't have to be in these entrenched positions so well, that, maybe well that's an interesting question who do you think is someone who really disagrees with you but is in good faith around this conversation um about i guess around this the the conversation around like what politics looks like right now especially to the extent to which it's it's about race so someone who who you know is maybe more focused on that than you are um, but who you think is actually trying? Um, yeah, there, there definitely is. I think, 
I've more encountered things with people um, on a one-on-one basis mm-hmm. of being like, you got to get away from the media. That wow. they're just like, I'm not comfortable with this. I'm afraid of getting called out. Mm-hmm. And it is, um, you know, they're definitely. I think there are a lot of people that are are nuanced. Um, that are that are more people that are writing theory less than yeah. people that are organizing campaigns. It's harder. It's harder to have a nuance that fits onto a protest yeah, sign, yeah, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. But there there are some things, and right, just like um, I think a lot of ethnic studies, the party line is that race is socially constructed. I would just take that like a little in omnidirectional that all of this shit is, you know. Sure, fair enough. So. Well, thank you very much for doing this with me.